0: Welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we dive into this month's policy focus, the impact of COVID-19 on our education system. With so much uncertainty around schools reopening, we'll discuss the effectiveness of online learning, how public schools successfully adapted, also what can we expect as we approach the typical back-to-school season, and finally, has this presented an opportunity to view educational choice and parental involvement as a posture that's likely to remain. But before we dive in, IWF does know that many Americans are facing unprecedented challenges due to COVID-19, and that it's more important than ever to show what America is made of. IWF is highlighting American ideals of ingenuity, generosity, and kindness. From everyday Americans donating blood to companies providing free food and housing, it's a beautiful reminder that we're in this together. Visit IWF.org or check us out on Facebook and Twitter and follow our campaign using hashtag In This Together, that is hashtag in this together to learn more. And now to our guest, the author of this month's policy focus. And Nez Stepman joins us. She is a senior policy analyst at Independent Women's Forum. Her research focuses on educational freedom, school choice, and the cultural impact of empowering parents with control over their children's education. Her thoughts on education policy have been published in numerous outlets, such as the Washington Examiner, The Hill, and others. And she frequently testifies as an expert in state legislatures across the country. She is also a senior contributor to the Federalist, where she writes on subjects ranging from feminism to fashion and is the Thursday editor of Bright, a women's daily newsletter. I do read that newsletter every day and always enjoy your fashion tips, Inez. So thank you for that and also for joining us on She Thinks today. Well, it's great to be here and great to hear that you're a Bright subscriber. I am. I enjoy it. I think it's always gives good focus to issues specifically that women care about and education, the area that you focus your, your research on is an area that people care about. And I, I would assume that researching this area, it's been the most interesting time in your life studying it, because I would say other than healthcare, this has been that institution that's been disrupted the most due to COVID-19. What has it been like to delve into educational policy during such an uncertain time?
1: <laughs> it, it, it's a bit like uh, jumping into the deep end, that's for sure. Um, and But that's certainly the, the position that a lot of schools find themselves in, Um and districts and, and various administrative units find themselves in. Uh, that being said, you know, there's a, there comes a point where uh, we have to evaluate their performance, even especially as we're not in the, the introductory weeks of this crisis, right? Um, a lot of schools have already, most schools, in fact, have already wrapped up their school years, many of them wrapped up in May, Um, And and honestly, overall, they've done a pretty disappointing job adjusting to this crisis and they're causing a lot of unnecessary stress and frustration
0: among parents. And so what are some of those specifics? I mean, I know that I see what parents put up there. Some of them had to work during all this or were working through all of this, so they couldn't be there to help their kids. Some were struggling with Wi-Fi access. Some families, not enough computers. Some, the school system didn't do well adapting to online. I mean, what have you found to be some of the common problems of not just what families were facing, but that school districts were facing?
1: Well, what, one of the problems during this quote-unquote accidental homeschooling um, is, is phase, which is what I like to call it, accidental homeschooling, is that um, this isn't really homeschooling and it's not really school, right? So it's trying to duplicate the classroom environment at home through various internet and other uh, services. And, and that really hasn't worked very well because while there are schools and institutions that are used to implementing digital learning that actually do it as their primary method of learning with students. Um, most schools were not used to doing that. So there were some unacceptable delays even in getting any kind of online learning um, to, to most students. In fact, by the time school years have been wrapping up at the end of May, um, only ab- about just under half of school districts in America were actually delivering what I would call online instruction, meaning there was live online instruction and they were teaching new material. Um, so just under half of the schools in America ever got to that point, point. Um, and, and that's by the end of May. So like I said, basically by the end um, of the school year. And then even if you were um, part of a school district that did manage to get real online learning off the ground uh, before the end of the school year, Uh, There were just, you know, it's not for every kid. There's a reason that brick and mortar schools remain quite popular um, in the United States. There are students who benefit from online learning uh, and and there are some great charter school networks that entirely work uh, virtually but it doesn't work for every kid just like any method of instruction and so there's been a lot of frustration i think with the uncertainty with the way that online instruction has been delivered uh, with the lack of of what we might call low-tech options aka pencil and paper Um, and then i i think there's some frustration with the curriculum itself i mean this is an opportunity um, for a lot of parents that they haven't actually had in the past to really take a look and what and how their kids are learning. And a lot of parents are finding that they're not particularly thrilled with what and how their kids are learning, um, whether that's the pace of instruction, uh, whether their kids are behind or ahead of the pace of instruction, uh, whether the kids are just bored. They might just see how boring some of these workshops and, um, and, and assignments actually are, or um, they might be a little astounded at the way that curriculum has really shifted uh, since perhaps they were in school, uh, especially on sensitive and, and cultural issues like American history um, or, or human sexuality, or uh, for example, nowadays uh, climate change. So a, a lot of a lot of parents are taking their first look at that, and, and uh, some of them are not thrilled with what they're seeing.
0: And there's been a push by the public education system for a long time to exclude parents being involved in the curriculum and what their children are learning. It's this mentality of send your children to us and we'll parent them, we'll take care of them. Um, Everything, as you said, from sex education to what they should view about the climate and climate change. So do you find that this is presenting a an opportunity to change the way parents think about educating their children? You mentioned some examples there, but do you think that there are enough parents out there who are saying, first of all, I didn't realize this was going on. And second of all, we do have options and I didn't realize we had options before.
1: Well, um, it's still too early to say what the long term impacts at this moment will be. There are some poll numbers that show um, that 40% of parents are more likely to homeschool after this um, because they, they've kind of uh, seen uh, how to homeschool. And it hasn't gone perfectly, but uh, actually plenty of parents are, are choosing to formally homeschool. And I'd actually like to uh, talk to our listeners about that option. Even if you're, you don't see yourself homeschooling long term, Uh, and and after things get back to normal and schools fully reopen. And the fact is that a lot of schools are not going to normally reopen this fall. There will be various um, uh, public health changes that are put into place. Uh, There might be alternate school days. Um, There might be various onerous restrictions. Um, Up to a third of teachers are actually high risk um, for COVID-19. So uh, there might be a lot of teachers not returning to the classroom. In the fall. So, you know, school is not going to look quite normal in most places in the fall. And so, a lot of parents, between the failures of online learning and school not really looking normal in the fall, uh, might be interested in continuing to homeschool, but without the worksheets and the Zoom classes. it might be, in fact, easier and more edifying to assign book reports uh, to your child for the first six months of the school year, for example. And that, that is absolutely a right in all 50 states. Um, and, and actually, I want to take this moment to assure parents that despite some of the gloom and doom they're hearing from um, some of the, the education researchers and, and from media, um, the fact is that your, your, your kids are learning during this time, the fact that they're not learning in the same way or the same exact curriculum or or way um, or or, uh, sort of milestones that they would be hitting in school. Uh, This may very well be the period that your kid looks back on where uh, he or she learned the most about current events, about this uh, historical moment in which we find ourselves more about what their parents do for a living, um, more practical household skills like how to cook um these, these are not valueless skills just because they are not on the next standardized test. Um, and, and so I just want to assure parents, and I think a lot of them are, are frustrated and worried rightly about, about their children's educational future, but it, this is not going to be a lost semester. They are learning something even if that thing is not exactly what the school system wants them to learn. Um, but yes, you do have options starting with, with um, pulling your kid formally out. of of the school system and continuing homeschool at your own direction, as opposed to the school district or the teacher's direction. Um, And then in many states, depending on where you live, there are school choice options. So uh, there are virtual charter schools. and They are much more prepared for this moment, obviously, um, just because this is how they normally deliver instruction. So their teachers are trained in, in delivering instruction online. Um, their entire model of of, uh, instruction is based around uh, a virtual classroom. And so they're just much more prepared. This is no knock on the public schools, actually, but they're just much more prepared by virtue of their pre-COVID business model for this moment. Unfortunately, some states are actually at the behest of teachers unions actually preventing additional students from signing up Um, for virtual options, even if those options are already uh, in existence in those states. We saw some of that in Pennsylvania, for example. Um, And and that's just, uh, I mean, that's just abominable, right? At this point, everybody needs grace and flexibility um, and and nobody should be cutting off options for parents during this time, uh, when we're all scrambling uh, to to try to make things work in a very unusual environment. Uh, But but in terms of, of the longer list of options, Um, One program that has, I think, really stood out uh, among the states in this time is uh, education savings accounts, which are programs that are currently in operation um, in six states, and uh, most particularly in Arizona and Florida, where the biggest programs are. And parents there actually receive, um, even prior to this crisis, they receive a portion of the state funds, uh, essentially on a debit card. Uh, and they're able to use it for any educational service. And especially as we go to sort of a cautious reopening um, in a lot of states, those programs are going to be invaluable to parents because if if the regular school is not uh, sort of on full reopen because it's dense and there are a lot of kids and, and as I said, a third of teachers are high risk, um, with an ESA, parents can actually bring tutors into their home to tutor their kids one-on-one Uh, They can they can pay for um, instructional materials, they can pay for all kinds of um, sort of additional learning therapy if if their child has special needs. Um, so, So those are really the most flexible way to conduct education and we're finding that that flexibility is especially valued during this time and for good reason.
0: And I want to let our listeners know that if they're interested in the policy focus, of course, they can find it on IWF.org. It is called The Impact of COVID-19 on Our Education System. Inez did author that, so she has a lot more valuable information on that. And I want to pick up on something you said, Inez. You talked about these education savings accounts. You're talking about states, if I'm understanding correctly, who already have this in place. Um, We know that we're going to be reaching budget issues as we already are in every area of American life, but that's going to impact the education system as well. Do you find that states are trying to help parents out who needed to take on the education of their children? Are states trying to implement education savings account, even if they're thought of as being temporary during this time?
1: Well, it's, it's going to be a battle, and it's too early to say. Uh, they, they really ought to because it's, it's a win-win for everybody. Um, almost all school choice programs and almost all the studies that have been done on this issue uh, show that school choice programs actually uh, provide better results in terms of both academic and, importantly, life outcomes. Like So, for example, uh, the, the voucher program in Milwaukee actually dropped uh, felony convictions and in their students as young adults, as compared to uh, the, the public school system, actually drop felony convictions among their graduates by 93%, right? So there, there are later life outcomes that are more important than test results, but still the vast majority um, of, of studies show an increase in, in math and reading test results in school choice programs. But importantly for this upcoming budget crunch, Every school choice program actually educates children at a fraction of the cost, the overall per pupil cost in this state, right? So many of them are, are a third or half the cost. Um, and, and that's largely because we have this underlying um, malassumption, I think, in our politics, and that's that education is underfunded in this country. In reality, uh, the United States is actually somewhere in the second, third, or fourth place in terms of the PISA countries, that's Europe, us, and certain Asian, South Asian countries, uh, we are near the top uh, in terms of per pupil spending. We spend more than virtually any other country uh, educating our young people. Um, and, and that number itself is much higher than most people think it is. So the average per pupil expenditure in the United States is, is getting close to $17,000 a year. That's more than the tuition of the average private school. Um, so it is not the case that uh, the education system is underfunded. Now, parents uh, and, and citizens might come back to me and say, but my teacher just had to buy chalk. What do you mean we're not underfunded, right? Um, that's probably an old example. My teacher had to buy the iPad, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but but it's true that there are shortages at the classroom level, but that's because money is is not well allocated within the public education system. So if if you take a look, there's an, an amazing report uh, done by Ed Choice and economist Ben Scafidi, uh, who looks into where all that money has gone. And it turns out it's gone into a bureaucratic administrative staffing boom um, for the last 30 years. So we've seen um bureaucrats essentially and compliance officers and and generally non-teaching staff explode over the past 50 years by more than 700 percent and at the same time teachers the number of teachers has doubled Um, and that's because we're generally driving down class sizes so so parents do do like the fact that we've we've increased the number of teachers but we've only increased the number of teachers twofold we've increased the number of bureaucrats sevenfold to the point where they're breaking even in most bureaucrats, there are the same, uh, in most districts, sorry, there are the same number of teachers and bureaucrats, and that's enormously expensive. Um, And then, of course, there is the pensions, um, both of of teachers, but also of those many more bureaucratic staff. So that's a large part of what uh, is soaking up those funds. In fact, in some places like Illinois, only eleven cents of every new education dollar that's added to the budget actually ends up going uh, to anything that is actually used in the classroom, including teacher salaries. So these are poor priorities. And now that we're all looking at a budget crunch, we should be you know scrutinizing the school districts for the choices they make during this budget crunch. Um, and And one of those choices should be, if they have to tighten their belts, like everybody in America is going to have to, uh, they should be looking to get rid of administrative officers, not teachers, and not things that go directly into the classroom. Uh, it, it's 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 uh, been a, a, a nice boom time for them for the last thirty years. Uh, it's It's absolutely false that education funding, by the way, has dropped over the past decades. Education funding is about twice as much uh, per pupil in real adjusted dollars as it was uh, three decades ago. so, If they have had a nice nice long run, um, unfortunately, that run is coming to an end, and they're going to have to make tough choices, and they should make them in a smart way without threatening (laughs) to fire teachers um, just to get the public angry, which which has happened in the past. Um, But yes, school choice uh, will be a win-win during those budget crunches because they will get some of the kids uh, educated at a, a fraction of the cost. Those children will have greater opportunities, according to all of the social science research that we can find. Um, And and so really, you would think that in sort of an apolitical world, um, states would be rushing to pass school choice programs. But um, unfortunately, we haven't seen that yet. Uh, And that's largely because of political considerations. Uh, Schools and teachers unions are worried that they will lose students permanently going forward, and not just to homeschooling, which I think is why you see the attack launched ludicrous attacks without any basis um, in social science or in research launched against homeschooling at this time, Um, schools are worried that uh, each student, uh, remember, costs them an an average of $17,000 every time one student decides uh, to stay home and and, uh, one family decides to keep their their student as a homeschooler. And and the same thing happens when they lose students to school choice programs. Um, And so it would be a win for the, the, state, uh, the state legislature in terms of budgeting. It would be a win for parents in terms of options and flexibility, uh, but there are political considerations from the school districts and from the teachers unions.
0: And one final question for you, and this is because you're talking about bloated budgets, I want to just turn very quickly to higher education. There's a lot of transition that's going on when it comes to colleges and universities, who we know the cost uh, to attend has gone up dramatically, far past inflation for students to attend college and university. So are you seeing, and these are the reports that we're hearing, that that a lot of people are choosing to forego college this year, especially since the on-campus experience may not be there.
1: I am hoping that one silver lining of this crisis will be an earthquake in the way that we fund university and the percentage of people who go through the university system. Um, The university system essentially made a promise a long time ago uh, to the taxpayer, right? It said essentially fund the loans to attend our institutions. and if you do that, we will do two things. We will graduate students who are, are uh, more likely to go on and become leaders in their communities, start small businesses, uh, you know, invent new things, uh, create companies. Um, we, will, we will up the GDP. So that's one promise. The second promise is we're going to create wiser citizens. The more people we put through university who get a bachelor's degree, uh, they'll be wiser, they'll be smarter, they'll be better informed, and they'll be better citizens. Um, well, the latter of those two goals is laughable. Um, if you look at any of the civics numbers today, it's not just that college students are not learning about our American governance system, it's that they're actively being taught to hate it. Um, and and that's, that, that burden falls on K-12 as well, and I don't want to, uh, to, to leave them out of this analysis. But the fact is uh, that the universities exist on the lifeblood of taxpayer-backed student loans. And I've long advocated that we need to eliminate that taxpayer backing and and return some semblance of limits to this market, because that's one of the major reasons we see costs skyrocketing well above inflation, um, is because those loans are not being made on the basis like a bank would make them, right? A private bank would look at the return, the possible return. Um, The federal government doesn't do that, right? The federal government just writes a blank check and says, here, go anywhere, um, take any program... We don't care, right? So, because they don't care about the return on investment. Um, and and that's produced an enormous number of, of valueless degrees and a huge number of people who are struggling with enormous debt, way out of sync with the economic bump they got from getting a degree. In fact, we expect pre-COVID, we expected that 45% of those loans would be in default by 2023. Uh, that number has probably only gone up during this time, which brings me to how COVID is going to impact the university system. If even 10% of, um, of students decide to take a gap year this year, they decide not to enroll um, in, u- in the university system, we will see universities close unless they are bailed out by the taxpayer. Now they've only gotten one bailout so far. Uh, they got 13.5 billion in the CARES Act um, And that's that whole brouhaha, if anyone remembers, uh, that Harvard took $9 million, even though they have billions in their endowment fund. Now, Harvard's not going to go under anytime soon. As I mentioned, they have that giant endowment, and they have uh, a very, very uh, good reputation in terms of of, um, for employers, right, so that they're graduates. They don't have a good reputation, I don't think, anymore in terms of civics um, or contributing to the general Uh, welfare of the country, but they do have a high reputation with employers, and um, they're not likely to go under anytime soon. But we have many, many more colleges and universities, over 4,000 actually, many more than any other Western country. Um, And and some of those uh, colleges and universities are not granting degrees that are of any value to the students who are attending them. And I do think that you'll see absent another bailout, which which we should absolutely oppose, you'll see some of these universities close their doors. And I think that that's right. This is a sector that is uh, outsized um, and bloated because of the investment of the taxpayer. And they've simply not shown in recent years that they're worthy of that investment from the taxpayer.
0: And like you said, even though there are educational hurdles right now, there could be a lot of silver linings in all of this, and including in higher education, making sure that, first of all, college costs what it ought to and that it's not being inflated due to government involvement. And I think it's helping young people rethink the type of degrees that they want, focusing on careers more than degrees and what can help them in their career. So could be a lot of silver linings. I want to let people know once again, if they want more information on the policy focus, go to iwf.org. It is called the impact of COVID-19 on our education system. Inez, thank you so much for joining She Thinks Today.
1: Thanks for having me, Beverly.
0: And thank you for joining. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating, or review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so you can let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.